Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, um, look on your buddy's Bible. If you do not have a buddy, it will be on the screen, so don't worry about it. Um, I always think there's something that's really valuable about um, like turning in your own Bible and stuff like that. It's nice to remember where things are and relate them to things that you've read before. If you don't have a Bible, we can definitely hook you up. We've got Bibles all over the place. And um, if you're interested in uh, taking one for free, um, we would love to get you connected with that. Something we use every Sunday. So I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read a, a decent chunk, so, so hold on to your hats, and then we're going to narrow in as we go. Verse 1 says this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Verse 12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, we're almost there. He who believes in him, him being Jesus, is not judged, but he who does not believe has, already, has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil." For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. So, um, I want to give a little bit of context, a little bit of setting, paint this picture for us. And we're actually going to be narrowing into one thing that Jesus says. So if you're like, how in the world... Are we going to get through all of this? You just read 21 verses. Almost every verse is introducing a new theme. Um, we're, we're narrowing in on one theme, but I wanted to give you guys everything, so I'm not just trying to sell this like it was just some sort of offhanded statement. There's a context to what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus 
is, um, is, is introducing a lot of important themes here. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about, um, he doesn't say this precisely, but he's talking about the salvation of man, how, how people can be right with a righteous God. And he's talking about his own identity. He's talking very candidly with this fellow Nicodemus. He's talking very candidly about who he actually is. And all of these themes are hugely important. And this conversation is actually, actually exclusive to John, and it's in such great detail. But I want to I focus in on the kingdom of God and how that, that affects the salvation of people, how people can be saved. Because when we hear terms like heaven or eternal life or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or salvation, what happens in the, the Western mind is they immediately go to what happens after you die. That salvation is where you go when you finally, your heart stops beating, your brain stops pulsing, and you die. And people are very concerned about this. People are very concerned about this question. I've gotten this question a ton when I was a youth pastor. People would ask me all the time, like, what is heaven actually going to be like? Is it going to be, like, really fun? Is it going to be, like, personalized? What's it going to be like? Because people are so concerned about what happens after you die. But I think if we read carefully, that's not really the emphasis that Jesus is putting here. And it rarely is. Jesus' preaching is often summarized in, in the gospel uh, narratives in these biographies as he would go around preaching the kingdom. And we usually think that's like, believe in Jesus and be saved. And that's never what he seems to be talking about. It's, it seems very rare that he brings up those kinds of topics. Paul, on the other hand, brings up those topics all the time. But when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, he's talking about something else entirely that isn't just dependent on what happens to the individual when their heart stops beating. What he's concerned with is the eternal, everlasting, universal dominion of God. He has a much higher vision than just like, I don't want to feel bad after I die. I've already felt bad enough in this life. I would like to be a little comfortable. I would like to go to um, paradise. I would like to have all these sort of things. I don't get to take very many vacations in life, so I would like to go to, to paradise when I die. Jesus isn't necessarily dealing with those kinds of questions here. He's dealing with what it's like when God is the Lord. And I want to I parse that out a little bit. Let's, but let's start with Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is recognized, you see him other places throughout the biographies of Jesus, but he's recognized as a ruler of the Jews. He's a Pharisee, he's a priest, he's a teacher, and he's a respected person. And I don't want you to think he's like a celebrity pastor, because we have like celebrity pastors or like Chris Pratt, you know, like a celebrity Christian, you know, it's like, wow, what an influential person. Um, it's a little bit more intense than that because he actually has authority in like the governing structure of Israel. That's the way the priesthood worked. They weren't just religious leaders, but they were actually leaders of the country. And um, it's a little complicated in, in this context because they are under like Roman occupation. So they are technically all subjects of Caesar, but they do have some level of autonomy that they can make their own judgments and their own decisions. And so Nicodemus is a part of that company that he's an important religious leader. Now, it, it makes a point to say that he comes by night. <laughs> he comes at night after work. Everybody shook hands. Everybody went home. And he comes and he has this meeting with Jesus one-on-one, -on -one, presumably one-on-one. -on -one. Somebody else was obviously there to write it down. <laughs> Probably John, if we're being honest. Um, but he has this meeting with Jesus. And I think along with many scholars, we can probably reason that Nicodemus is trying to avoid the criticism of his peers. 
Because even at this point, I don't think John is incredibly concerned with chronology. I don't think he's trying to tell the story in order. But it's, it's early enough in Jesus' ministry that uh, people aren't trying to like kill him in the street right now. <laughs> but it's late enough where he's already performed many signs. And so Nicodemus is so compelled by the, the testimony and the witness of Jesus that he, uh, he schedules a meeting with him and meets him under the cover of night to blurt out this, this glaring personal confession. And I think it's incredible because if you could picture with me, um, it's really normal in, in ancient Israel for people to sit on the rooftops. I think they probably were on the rooftop of somebody's house, probably like uh, Mark's mom, they usually hung out at her house and stuff like that. And they're probably in Capernaum. It's probably getting a little cool, but it's kind of like that desert cool where it's like kind of like oppressively dry, and they're all sitting down. And I just imagine Nicodemus, and his hands are kind of shaking because he's used to speaking in front of people. He's used to addressing multitudes. He's used to communicating to important people. He's probably met magistrates and Roman leaders, but now he's sitting before someone who he confesses is from God. This isn't just a person who knows things about God. He knows lots of people like that. This is somebody who is from God. And can you imagine sitting down, Nicodemus, how was your day? We know that you're from God. We know that you're a rabbi. You're a teacher from the Lord. Okay, here we go. We're already in it. Like, he's not asking a question. He's just saying, we, we think this. And, and I think the word we, there's no way to, like, translate around that. I don't think he's speaking for the entire, like, Pharisaic order. I think he's trying to like kind of take a little bit of blame off of himself. Like, I really think this. I really come out of my way. And people like to debate the authenticity or the, the, the genuineness of Nicodemus. Like, maybe he's trying to lure Jesus into a trap, and he's trying to like mislead him, and he's actually being condescending. And I've heard it taught both ways, but real, realistically, I hold to a confession that Jesus is really smart. And I think he, he knows what's going on. I don't think he's usually like making mistakes in his judgments of people. Is that fair? Can we, can we get on the same page with that? And Jesus trusts this guy, that he actually discloses pretty important, pretty timely information to him about himself and about the kingdom. And so whether or not Nicodemus was legitimate, I think he was. I think there's a fair bit of scholarship to be on that side. I think Jesus thought he was. I think Jesus thought he was genuine and that he was risking a lot to come here at night and tell Jesus I think you're the real deal. You're a controversial figure. You're saying things that people are, their minds are getting blown, but I think you actually are from the Lord. And I love this because it, it brings us into this, this setting where um, this sort of fidgety Nicodemus is just standing before a proverbial fire hose. That, let, let's read what he says in, in verse 2 before I go in. Verse 2 of chapter 3, it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so we're talking about healing sick people. We're talking about casting out uh, demons from people. We're talking about these, these signs of affecting miracles like water turning into wine and these, these crazy occurrences that they, that they aren't used to, that they don't normally see. And the Lord is doing these things, restoring leprous people and all these things. And he's like, 
not only is your teaching just bananas bonkers crazy, but it's, it's confirmed by signs from God. I don't know what we do with that, but you must truly be a teacher from God. And this is a big thing because Jesus was very clearly a poor person. He wasn't from a noble family or a noble class. He was from a small town that was uh, confused and oppressed in a confusing and oppressing time of history. And yet this man of some stature and prestige says, you are a teacher. That Jesus would later on go to tell, call him the teacher of Israel. And, and this the teacher of Israel is identifying Jesus like, you're a teacher from God. You're the real deal. You really are whatever you claim to be. That's really who you are. And I think Jesus quickly retorts. And, and there's some repartee happening because Jesus just opens up the valve and just begins to unload information on Nicodemus. Nicodemus, if you read with me, I don't know how your translations read if you have a different reading of the Bible, he doesn't ask a question. He makes a confession. And Jesus answers him like there's five or six questions in his statement. So let's read in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And if you read this, especially like that, where you just read it like in chunks, it feels unrelated and random. <laughs> like, okay, that's not what we were talking about. I was hoping you'd be like, good job, well done, uh, good for you, high five, let's go get some falafel, let's go for a walk. You know, it's like, no, what's happening is like, I want to I tell you something that's really going to hurt your feelings, that's really going to hurt your preconceptions, that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And you can kind of understand where Nicodemus is coming from when he's like, but how? How is this possible? And he almost makes a joke, like as if to weed out the metaphor, like, okay, this must be a metaphor, like, how can a man go back into his mom? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, is that what you're calling for? And Jesus just keeps on unloading um, information, and he keeps on unloading these things. And the, the fascination that, that Nicodemus has for the signs that Jesus is performing is answered with an a introductory course on the kingdom of God. He's talking about this reality of being born again, which feels very at home in, in churches in America, because we talk about it all the time. We sing songs about it a lot. I love in uh, his commentary, H.R. Reynolds, on this passage, he wrote this, the Jewish rabbi ought to have been familiar with the idea of the new heart and right spirit and the marvelous and mighty change wrought in men by the Holy Spirit. But the spiritual idea had been overlaid by rabbinic ritualism and all the hopeless entanglements of ceremonial purity, which had been made to do duty for spiritual conformity with the divine will. Again, I got so many commentaries from Jack Moore, and I've just been like a kid in a candy store just reading all this stuff. And so if this language feels really old, I think they're all from like 1955 or earlier. So um, <laughs> I, I want to un unpack that just a little bit, but I think that was summarized really well. Nicodemus was uh, realistically, like many of, of people in his um, position, proud of his position. He was proud of his heritage. And a, a lot of us probably think that we're above all that sort of stuff, like well, I'm not, I'm not like a, a, a politician like Nicodemus, so I'm not like proud of, like I'm just a humble, everyday person just doing what I do. But realistically, I think we all do things like this, that we are thankful to be born into America. You know, like we could have had a completely different lot being born somewhere else. 
Like we're thankful to be born in a functional family or maybe to be finally out of our dysfunctional family. Like we're thankful to, um, and we're, we're proud to be healthy. We're proud to be um, capable or have the things that we have. And, and I think what's happening here is Jesus is beginning to talk about this, this picture of being born again. He's talking about you're not going to bring any of that into the kingdom of God. That no one has the advantage. That even the teacher of Israel who is an expert in the law has no advantage over anyone else. You have the same advantage that every baby has. And babies are the weakest, most vulnerable creatures in the human race. And I think this invitation to radical change at, at the fundamental level. No, Jesus is not asking you to go into your mother's womb and be born again. That's not what he's saying. It's a metaphor. But what he's saying is, like, you've got to start over completely. I remember uh, working with a young lady who is very well-traveled, much more well-traveled than I am. And she had been on missions work, and she had been on kind of recreational traveling, and she'd been a lot of places. And she was just really struggling with her upbringing and how... Um, how this, this idea of sharing the gospel with people that had no idea who Jesus was feels kind of like colonizing, feels very imperial, feels very like hostile takeover, she thought. And she's like, I just don't understand why people have to, have to change. Like these people have a beautiful culture and a beautiful life. Why do they have to give that up? And I think this was several years ago, and, and I definitely wasn't like well-equipped to answer this question, but I think what I came down to is, like, I, I think we're beginning with the wrong premise. Everyone has to change. It's not if you are uh, a Maori person on, in the far remote regions of New Zealand, you have to change. Or if you're, like, a, a folk religion person in some tribal village in Mexico, you have to change. Everyone has to change. That's why it means we have to be born again. We don't start with anything. And I think we, we try to bring things into following Jesus, and it just doesn't work. And that's why so many people deconstruct and deconvert. Is like, I can't have my, my ethics. I can't have my views on the world and follow Jesus. Jesus has a completely different set of views and a completely different set of ethics that contradict what the social norm is kind of appealing to right now. But we all have to be born again. And this isn't just a question of how to avoid hell, but this is how do I actually walk with the Lord? Because in response to the signs and the wonders that Jesus is performing, he starts talking about this idea of being born again. He starts talking about this idea of, of a life that is following Jesus, a life that is actually submitted to him. And, and what I hear as I've read this passage several times is this is what it looks like when the kingdom is on earth. People getting saved, people getting healed, people getting delivered, miracles being enacted, food being multiplied, parties getting way more fun. This is what it looks like when the kingdom is breaking in on earth. People are convicted of sin and forgiven. People have sorrow over loss and are comforted. And this isn't just something unique to the incarnation of Jesus. He's saying that if you're born again, you can see this. This is the kingdom being, being driven through you and, and, and coming on the earth. The kingdom of God is not just about someday when we all finally kick the bucket. The kingdom of God is today. Eternal life is, is now. 
I believe there is, a, there is a resurrection at the end. That's not what we're talking about today. But I believe that doesn't really happen. But I believe that the kingdom of God is an invitation. Now, think of how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, let your name be holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not your kingdom come, your, your will be done in heaven. That's already settled. Wherever God is, whatever you think about that, wherever God is, he's getting his way. And Jesus saying, right now, with your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and your family, God is not getting his way. So pray like this, that God would have his kingdom on earth. Not God would have his kingdom when we all finally die and the blessed hope, blah, 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 blah. God would have his kingdom today. And, and Jesus will show you how he, he brings about his kingdom. The first step is that you must be born again. That everything about you fades away and you are born into a new person in Jesus. And that's a whole can of worms, you guys. There's a lot to that. And, and there may be 20 to 30 red flags that may come in your mind. But what about this? What about that? What about you? What about, what about me? Like, what about, like how, do we, how do we deal with that? That sounds so huge. And I think Jesus wasn't intimidated by saying something that sounds so extreme. So now... We are sitting with Nicodemus across the table from Jesus, shrinking into our stools. What is he talking about? What do we do with this? Because I want to take time and explain it to you. And if I don't do a good job this morning, we can talk later. We can, we can even if you have convenient times later on in the week, we can talk about it some more. Jesus wasted no time on such talking. He's just moving on from point to point to point. And then he kind of insults Nicodemus a little bit. And then he keeps going. And so we're all now shrinking into our, our chairs with Nicodemus, and Jesus just keeps going. And if I were to remove you from your history with Jesus, these things feel ill-defined. They feel vague and daunting. It, it's, it's scary to have something that seems so important not be outrageously clear. <laughs> and, and I think, um, I think uh, that's a, a major mark of the teaching of Jesus, that Jesus would often drop these little clickbaity sort of things and make you ask questions. He was very into that. Can you imagine sitting under the parables of Jesus when he just gives you four examples of sowing seed and then says, blessings, good night. Was this a lesson on agriculture? Because we're all farmers, Jesus. What are you talking about? It wasn't until after... After dinner, that the disciples are like, so that whole farming talk, what was that about? And he's like, oh, you don't know that? You don't understand this? It's like, no, we absolutely need you to explain it to us. Like, this is, this is the modus operandi of Jesus, is that he, he gives these, these really delectable tidbits, and, and then you search out the answers with him, and, and somewhere in there we become friends, and somewhere in there we become his, his servants, and we follow him. So let's, let's keep looking. In verse 11... Jesus is continuing uh, to answer the unasked questions of Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Jesus is saying, I'm not making this up. This is something that exists in heaven. This is something that we've witnessed, and that's why we talk about the kingdom in this way. <clears throat> Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? which is wild. It reminds me of Deeper Project when we were reading Hebrews. And I think it's like chapter 11 that the writer of Hebrews is like, so this is all elementary stuff, right? So let's just get that all under the, under the rug now and let's move on to the, the important stuff. And it's like, 
We were talking about angels in chapter one, and you're telling me this is elementary stuff? This is fundamentals? Like, what, are, what is going on? And he's like, this is earthly stuff. This is normal stuff. This is stuff that you can grasp and you can understand. But I have more mysterious things to tell you. Verse 13 says this, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And so in this, in this short section, and I'm doing my best to not just unpack every single phrase, but um, in this short section, Jesus is making some pretty profound assertions about himself. He's saying that he descended from heaven. So if you've ever heard somebody say, like, Jesus never claims to be God. That's something that Christians made up later on. He absolutely claims to be God. And this, this assignment that he gives himself, the Son of Man, is his favorite self-realization because it literally just means human, but it identifies him with a, a, holy, um, a holy messianic uh, tradition of, of the book of Daniel. And, and he's saying all these extreme things. And I can just imagine you and Nicodemus, me and Nicodemus, just like, I should have brought a notebook I don't even know what he's talking about anymore. Heavenly things, he's talking about like wind. We don't know where wind comes from. We won't discover where wind comes from for thousands of years. Like, what is he talking about? We shrink down and suddenly you hear it. He's speaking your language now. And your hands are on your temple. And then you pop up. You're like, I heard it. There it was. And your mind immediately hyperlinks as Nicodemus to Numbers 21. Because in verse 14, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's like, I know that one. I know that story. I know what he's talking about. Nicodemus, the expert on the law, the teacher of Israel, now has a moment to interject like, hey, I know something about this. I've read that story. I know that I've taught that story to God's people. But wouldn't you know it, Jesus quoting scripture quotes this really bizarre difficult story in typical Jesus fashion. So as, as Nicodemus hyperlinks to Romans 20, or sorry, Numbers 21, um, he recalls this story. He recalls the context. He recalls these things. He's an expert in the law. He probably has this story memorized. And honestly, reading about this even Jewish interpreters have a difficult time with this passage because it's very weird. And the Old Testament and the New Testament are full of weird things, and that's kind of exciting because it means that this wasn't written just for us. This was written for ancient cultures. This was written for people of all time, and it means something, but it's not directly on the surface. So let's, let's look at Romans, or why do I keep saying Romans? Numbers 21. I'm going to start in verse 1 with just a little bit of context to see where we're at, but it really gets uh, cooking uh, in a couple verses. <clears throat> verse 1, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites and utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was Hormah. <clears throat> they set out from Mount Hor uh, by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. 
and the people became impatient because of the journey. This is where we really start cooking in some crazy stuff. Verse 5 says this, The people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Which sounds ironic, because they just said, there's no food, and then they're like, but the food here, I mean, if we're being honest, the food just sucks. Verse 6, hang on with me, all right? The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit them, so that the people of Israel died. Take a, take a deep breath, here we go. Verse 7, so the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us, and Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, which is how they would carry like flags and stuff like that. Um, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. If you would humor me for a moment as we just kind of look at things here, this is such a weird, convoluted way to respond to people and to answer people. So one, like the Lord is righteous. Coming into a passage like, like Numbers 21, uh, there's not even a Romans 21. I don't know what my problem is. Um, coming into a passage like Numbers 21, um, you have to presuppose this theological concept that God is righteous and he does what is right. And so when you complain against him, when you, you deny him and rebel against him, you are wrong. So that's, that's the, the presupposed viewpoint here. But the way God responds to these arrogant, selfish people is to send flaming snakes to bite them and kill them. This is the God of the Bible. This is Jesus, who would later on be described as the exact representation of what God is like, sent flaming snakes. I think the word fiery generally means the way it feels when they bite you. But if you want to picture them on fire, I won't stop you. Because <laughs> that is terrifying. This is a fun fact. You guys know, uh, um, like, uh, seraphim in the Bible? Like, the, the angels that are around the throne of God that have, like, eyes all over themselves and wings and all that sort of stuff. That is the same word as fiery snake. So you can even picture those guys as snakes that are on fire, but they happen to have wings and eyes all over their bodies. So um, the Bible is a carnival of, of amazing things. And, and the Lord is, is in his wisdom, not just in some sort of rampant rage or anything like that. He's responding to the people in this way. And the people realize, and that's why I can say with such confidence that um, the Lord is righteous and the people were wrong is the people realize in truth, we did the wrong thing. And they, they confess to Moses, like, we should not have talked against God. We should not have done that thing. So pray for us that God would, would forgive us and heal us. So they believe that God had compassion, that God could forgive, that God was righteous. And God hears the prayer of Moses. And he's like, all right, maybe you and I would just heal the people and send the snakes somewhere else. But now Moses, who spent all of his formative years training in politics in Egypt, now has to make a bronze serpent. <laughs> he probably hired someone else to do it, but it's still like, 
hard work for a, a major crisis that's unfolding right outside your tent. You know, like people are actively being bit and people are actively dying. And he's like, I need you to make a hammered work of bronze so that way I can answer your prayer. Why are you doing it this way? <laughs> like, I don't understand why you're answering prayer this way because we see Jesus healing people at a distance. He's not even there. And people are like, I believe you can heal my daughter. And your daughter's healed this very moment. Even Peter, his shadow passes over people and they get healed. He didn't even pray. <laughs> like, and yet Moses, the prophet of the Lord, has to make a hammered work of bronze, put it on a stick, and wave it in front of people. And people have to look at it after they've been poisoned or, excuse me, my son would correct me, it's venom, not poison. They've been uh, put venom inside their veins, and they're actively decaying and dying by a fiery serpent. And I think this is fascinating because in, in the ancient Jewish tradition, they weren't super fond of using symbols. That was something that was very, like... Um, like heathen, pagan sort of practices where like you'd have an image of your God that you'd like take into your house or you'd go to in the temple. You'd have like a statue or a figure or some sort of representation. And, and the big thing with, with Jewish culture is like we are the image of God, that God made us in, in, in his image, and so we worship God. We don't worship an image of God. We worship God. And yet in this weird, strange scenario in Numbers, he's like, well, I want you to make a picture and I want people to look at it. But why? Why would you do this? And then thousands of years later, Jesus is like, you know what story I really relate to, Nicodemus? That flaming serpent on a stick. I really relate to that story. Oh, are you, are you Moses in the story? No. Because in other places, Jesus will be compared to Moses. Jesus will compare himself to Moses. But in this story, he's like, you know who I really identify with? It's the snake. And you can, you can probably imagine with me, I don't know, is, any, is anybody like a snake fan? Anybody big on snakes? It's okay, we won't judge you. Shannon says he's kind of big on snakes. He's like medium on snakes. If you, if you are into snakes, we've got snakes like under the patio over here. You can totally hang out with those snakes. But um, <laughs> you can take them home. Um, <laughs> we don't want them here. But you can imagine, snakes are kind of yucky. They're dangerous, for real. We had some missionaries from... Uh, uh, they called it the armpit of Africa. I don't think that's the geological term uh, or geographic term. But, uh, and they were talking about like black mambas and stuff like that that can like have enough venom to kill you like three times. Snakes are serious business. And in the Bible, this isn't just our modern interpretation of snakes. The Bible, snakes were used for deception. They were used for evil for like Genesis 3 reasons. That when we first see our adversary, the devil, he appears to mankind as a snake. And yet in this story, Jesus is, is fondly remembering this, this wonderful story composed by the Holy Spirit, recorded by the hand of Moses. And he's like, man, that snake, I really have a lot in common with that, that flaming serpent. And I, and I love this, and this is so compelling to me, because it works on so many levels that it addresses so many parts of the story of what it means for us to be born again and what it's like when the kingdom of God comes on earth. Because Jesus is asserting here that this obscure, short story is foreshadowing himself. Just like Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That Jesus is saying, all those years ago, when God told Moses to do this, 
He was thinking of me. He was thinking of this moment. I, I don't think it would be too like crazy and bombastic to say, he's probably thinking of this conversation, Nicodemus. I don't know if Jesus told anybody else this, but Nicodemus. And now us, because we're voyeurs on the, the narrative of the Bible. And we get to see this conversation and, and Nicodemus just be like, what do you mean? Because we don't get any record of what Nicodemus did after that until after Jesus died. But I'll give you the, the abbreviated version. Nicodemus stuck with it. That, uh, like, um, I think it was Justin, Justin Martyr recorded Nicodemus as a follower of Jesus. He had come out as a follower of Jesus, like, openly. And he, he helps Joseph of Arimathea retrieve um, Jesus' body after he died. He stuck with it, even after this really weird, uncomfortable encounter with Jesus. He probably pondered on this. He probably thought about this, like, what could, you be, what could you mean? I don't understand. You want to be lifted up like the serpent? You don't even want to be Moses in this story? You want to be the serpent? And I love it because what happens now, as Jesus is challenging this great teacher, this expert on the law, what happens now is that we get to see the snake, obviously, on the surface level, as a symbol of God's wrath. That when God responds to this rebellious, wicked people, he sends a serpent to show them he means business. And we see that, and we are sad <laughs> over our sin. We're sad over our position. We're sad over the way our lives have gone. And God is glorified as we mourn the pain. And we can also see the snake now as a symbol of our own wickedness. That it's God's wrath, but it's also a symbol of our rebellion from the beginning. I don't know how easily corrupted, I don't know if other temptations came towards Adam and Eve in the garden. But it was this snake with his sly words and his temptations. The deceitfulness of wisdom, he came and he was able to convince them that God was not righteous and wise, and that they could form their own way. And because of that decision, all mankind have been doomed to sin ever since. All mankind have been doomed to a destiny in hell without the forgiveness of God. So this snake represents the righteous wrath of God, the deplorable sin of man, and then Jesus brings it all home by saying, and it's also the compassion and the love of God. This snake takes on this image, and you've probably seen it before. I had a, a painting that I was going to put in, but I couldn't find out who painted it, and that just felt not right, that I would like use somebody else's work and not be able to give them credit. It's obviously an old painting, but I couldn't find who painted it, so I'm not going to use a picture. But you've seen this picture before, and you don't even know it. You've seen a cross with a snake around it at hospitals and at pharmacies, because for thousands of years now, it's represented healing. And people have founded hospitals and, and medicine research facilities based on this philosophy that God can heal you that you maybe even deserve what you've received, but God is going to heal you. And, um, and I love this because it, my theory is, I don't have all the, all the um, meat and potatoes to back this up, but I think it's safe to say that in the time that the Jewish people didn't really have a great interpretation of Numbers 21, besides the peculiar holiness of God. God did weird stuff all the time. This was just another one of those weird things that God does. 
But then we see it in the light of Jesus, where now our eyes are opened to the truth of the gospel, the good news about God. Now what we see is that the, the sin that condemned us, the wrath that we rightly deserved, was all taken upon Jesus, who would take the very image and the essence of sin on the cross and suffer and die for it. That the, the kingdom of God is revealed in this outrageously violent and brutal and shameful exhibition that is the cross. That is this way that he showed us that he loves us. That the, the righteous judgment that we deserve, he took on himself and he became the image of sin itself, the snake. So maybe some of you will become snake fans today and, and just think like, you can appreciate a snake at a distance. Let's go back to John 3. Uh, we'll read 14 again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. So whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And Jesus clarifies the looking thing is not the most important thing. So it's not like we all need to get cross necklaces so people can look at crosses and then crucifixes and then they can be forgiven and healed. He's saying that it's actually through the loyalty of faith that people are healed. That was symbolized by looking to the snake. But what we're actually doing is we're following Jesus. We're, we're believing Jesus and we're following him. And verse 16 um, is on college football players' uh, helmets all over the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And, and I love this, like this idea of God giving of himself to save us. That God taking his own wrath on himself to rescue us. That God is still a God of justice. That God still repays sin, but he took the payment on himself. And that through our confession of faith, we're renewed to a brand new, completely unique life. So being born again is not about modifying your behavior as... Nicodemus would suggest, like, do I have to go call my mom and have a really awkward conversation? No. It's not about changing where you are now. It's about starting over altogether. And this only happens at the cross. This isn't an effort of, of human ingenuity and your own stick to itness. This is about the power of God. That's why all preaching is inadequate. Because you can have really compelling, interesting speakers but the power actually comes from the message. The power actually comes from the foolishness of the message. The power actually comes from the potency of the word. I love um, a guy who, who um, he, he leads missionaries and he does all kinds of epic stuff. Um, he shared this story that he learned from uh, like uh, Muslim tribes in Africa that they would come to Jesus and they would tell this story of the chicken thief. Have you heard this story before? You've definitely heard it from me, but I'm going to tell it again because it's really good. It's a good visualization, so we're going to tell it. So what happens is there's this king, and he's in this village, and, it's, and he's got all of his leadership going on. He's got all these things going on, and he gets a report from one of his, his uh, underlings, and he, it says, oh, somebody's been stealing chickens all over the village. They've just been stealing all kinds of chickens. He's like, man, we've got to find that person. Let's institute a fine. Once we find that person, they're going to be fined $500. 
All right, everybody's searching for the chicken thief. Chickens continue to disappear. Nobody can find the chicken thief. All right, let's take this more seriously. $1,000 this thief is going to have to pay. They keep going. Chickens keep disappearing. They're searching everywhere. They're trying to catch this person. They can't catch them. You know what? This is ridiculous. Our food supplies are running low. This person is, is just unchecked. We, we've got to do something. If you find the person who is guilty, it will cost them their life. This is the death penalty now for this chicken thief. Mind you, this is Africa, so I'm not coming up like the chicken is the best example. But um, <laughs> this really got through to the people, and I think it'll get through to you. And so they search, and they search, and chickens are disappearing, chickens are disappearing. Finally, they catch the person in the act. It is the king's own mother who's been stealing these chickens. And they awkwardly come up to the king and be like, we found the thief, but you're not going to like it. It's someone who's really dear and important to you. So what do you do? Do you exercise mercy and look weak? That all these people were hurt. All these people were offended. Or do you bring about justice and kill someone who you love? So the king, they all go, takes his ramekin up to the, the city square. And he's like, tie her up. So there's this beam in the middle of the city. There's just this hush over the entire village as they just look in horror at justice. As they tie up this woman. The executioner comes up. And the king stops him. The penalty of death was, was 50 lashes on the back. No one could survive this. It's brutal. And so the king says, before you bring justice, let me come. And so he steps off his throne. He takes off his outer robe. He wraps his own arms around his mother. Bring the 50 lashes. That there is mercy in justice as the penalty that was rightfully deserved by the thief was paid for by the king. That is all of our story. That there is a penalty that has, been, that has been committed in our lives, whether we recognize it or not. There is a penalty against a righteous God, and yet the king himself has taken the punishment that we deserve on himself. That he became the image of sin, the one who knew no sin, that we could be righteous with him. And, and I love this, this picture of a serpent raised up, a, a hammered work of bronze raised up, and that people who felt no hope and were feeling the sting of death literally flowing through their veins were relieved in a moment. And there's not a lot of hoops to jump through with Jesus. People debate over this because they kind of want there to be more hoops. I remember sitting down in Amman, Jordan with, with Muslim men who knew the Quran really well and talking to them about this, and they're just like, that's too easy. That's scandalous. How dare he forgive you? How dare a God die? I had one guy who was like, oh, I kind of like that. And I was like, you should. It's really good. You know, it's, it's good news. I want, to, I want to end with 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. 
Starting in verse 17, Paul is talking about the doctrines of God and the gospel, and he, he makes a plea to all of us. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We didn't bring anything with us. We're not trying to import our lifestyles into Jesus, but we are new within him. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19 says, Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he, was committed, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And he, and he articulates the gospel in such a simple and beautiful way. He made him, him being Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become righteousness of God in him. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.